Hello, everyone, and welcome to the John Strzelecki Audio Experience. All right, everybody, welcome to this episode. We're in for a great one. We have a conversation with Eric Edmonds, adventurer extraordinaire. In this one, we cover why we crave unhealthy food, what it's like to live with African Bushmen, how food and psychology are connected, walking the line between bravery and stupidity, Bushmen cure for depression, growing your brain like an old London cabbie, and how marshmallow consumption is related to success. Enjoy. Eric, I'm so glad that we get this chance to talk. Thank you so much for taking time out of what I know is a very busy schedule for you. You are a fascinating dude. So we, our paths crossed at the greater events in Germany, um, which is how I got to know a bit about you, a bit about your story. And uh, when I was reading about you, one of the things I love is to talk to fascinating people who have done fascinating things with their life. And man, oh man, you, you certainly are 100% in that category. I was just explaining to people before you, you had a chance to join, you led expeditions about up Kilimanjaro, which uh, a buddy of mine made that climb. And uh, I suffer from altitude poisoning, so I had struggle with climbs like that. But talking to him, it was such not just a physical experience, but a mental experience. And here, not only have you done it, but you've led people multiple, multiple times on that climb. You have lived with African Bushmen, not just once, but it's something that is a part of your existence. You've redefined for thousands of people the way that they think about food uh, and the psychological elements of that. Where does all this come from, Eric? Like, what? What, uh, what drives you? What gives you the courage to leap into these big adventures? You know, I, I ultimately, it's a, 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 a curiosity. You know, I, I like satisfying curiosity. And, um, and the other one is this maybe a slightly overactive empathy. Like, I, when I solved my problems with food, I, I immediately became empathetically connected with the people around me that were suffering with many of the same problems I was, you know, weight and you know, inflammation and infections and, and what have you. And I couldn't just sit idly by and let that happen okay. for people. And so it's been a, a combination of fun seeking, curiosity, satisfying, and just liking helping people. That's awesome. That's, and I want to get into that as it relates to the food stuff, because I think that's a fascinating, uh, for those of you that haven't seen it, check out uh, Eric's videos on YouTube. Uh, they're, they're just a, he's a, you're a super entertaining guy when you speak, and so it's fun to watch you and, and fun to see the way, you, the way you engage with an audience. But the information is also really, really fascinating. But if I understand correctly, that part of your interest in this goes back to or is tied to the time you spent with uh, Bushmen in Africa. And I'm curious about that because that to me seems like one of those where, I mean, how did, how did you even get the idea initially? And then I've got subsequent questions related to that. But like, Were you just sitting at your house one day and you're like, African Bushmen. I'm going back to South Africa. I'm going to find people. Uh, you know, I, I, I got to speak in an event with Eric, with, um, uh, Chris Hatfield, the astronaut. And, and somebody asked him this, like, how did you become an astronaut? Did it just come? He showed a picture. And it was a picture of him getting into a box. Uh, his parents had bought a, a washing machine or something. Box, <laughs> And it had a hole cut out. And it said NASA on the side. And he goes, that's the moment right there. And uh, so for me, similarly, I was visiting the National Museum in Bloemfontein in South Africa. And uh, in that museum, there is the Florespad skull that my, my father's grandfather discovered. He was a zoologist and archaeologist. And I remember holding this, the cast of this skull in my hand, and it's got these two bite marks up in the top. And we don't know if the bite marks were cause of death or after death, you know. And I'm holding this thing, and, I, and then I'm trying to comprehend the time. 
I, I, you know, I mean, because, you know, look, look, I'm originally from South Africa, but I grew up largely in Canada. And in Canada, an old house might be 150 years old, but then I moved to England and an old house there might be 400 years old. And then, of course, if you travel around Turkey, or you go to, you know, you know, you start getting into houses that might be a thousand years old, go to Egypt and you see some 3,500 to 5,000 year old, unless aliens built them, but that's another issue. <laughs> but, but, but then you realize that these that the skull, it was 259,000 years old. It makes the Egyptian pyramids like, neighbor who built their house last week it's, yeah. it puts everything into perspective and holding that in my hand ignited this powerful curiosity in me about what life pre-technology was like and and that having that question in my head constantly um sort of began to uh you know move me in in this in this direction and one day i was leading one of my kilometer trips and uh a brigade leader had googled me and knew a little bit about my interests and said, by the way, would you, would you like to go and meet with some hunter-gatherers, some tribe? I'm like, oh my God, yes. And so we got into, we got into rovers with machetes and spent like days and days crafting until we first found them. And, um, and it was life-changing. And I've been going back and visiting them for about 15 years since. So it's been quite an adventure. Amazing. I, I love so many aspects of that story. Uh, for those that are watching that know the works that I do, so much of what I try and help inspire people to do is to put it out there, which you did. Because if it's only inside of your head, then all of these people who potentially could be connection sources for you have no idea. And yeah. the minute you put it out there, you open up the possibilities that someone can help make it happen. And so that's fantastic. So you put it out there. And even with that, though, so you put it out there, you had thought about it. Uh, was there any hesitancy on your part when the person said, I can actually help make this happen? No. No. No, and is that because of the way you're wired? And have you always been wired that way? Or did you grow into that level of confidence? You know, um, even as a kid, and I was a little shy, a little quiet in, in my thought process and stuff, I was, um, I walked that careful line between uh, bravery and stupidity. <laughs> and as I got older, I began to um, develop a, a greater sense of curiosity I, I just kept walking that line and I would say that some of the decisions I've made have not always I mean I was walking through the the you know walking through the Kruger National Park one day with my buddies and and two white rhinos tried very hard to kill us and I mean it was a it was a different day maybe not the smartest thing that I've ever done in my life but I also am really clear that and you know this is so common it's cliched at this point but real human experience real memories real growth as a human being is in this sweet spot outside your comfort zone before it becomes too dangerous, you know? And yeah. I just try to get as close to that danger line as I can without crying. If I don't do this, like, I'm not into this, like, red bulls, you know, squirrel flying through the canyons. I won't do that. But I will <laughs> off into the bush and go hang out with some bushmen. You know, that's, that's a different thing. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's fascinating. I think what I hear in, in your answer there is... It's when it's something that is of interest to you, you're more willing to push and figure out where exactly that end line is of where it becomes too dangerous that I want to back off just a touch. Yeah. And so, uh, and, and it's funny how you can have an experience, whether it is seeing something in a museum, which you did, and, and very cool also that it is tied to your story, your family story. Yeah. Um, I wonder if that's part literally of your DNA, of your cellular system, that there is that adventure within you. Um, but then when you found this thing, and it was just very obvious to you that, yeah, there's going to be obstacles, but I'm going to go ahead and walk through these obstacles. And what did you do language-wise? Did you have a translator that was with you, the, the person who connected you? And has that evolved over time because you've been back 15 years? 
Yeah, so I have a, a, a very good friend there now, Gasper, and he's been, um, he's been taking us on, he took us on, um, I think he's taken me on all the trips except for the very first one. Okay. And, and he speaks enough of their language and they speak enough really that between this, us, we're able to have some pretty fascinating conversations. And I have had deep conversations. Um, I've often taken film crews with me and, and, and recorded uh, interviews that I've done. And it, it, like, I, I'll give you, I mean, it, here's a great conversation I know you would love based on the work that you do. It's so fascinating. I asked the, the chief one day, his name is Nona in our world. In her, his world, it's pronounced something more like Nona. I can't quite yeah. pull it off, right? But, yeah. but I asked him one day if they, um, if they had depression. And th there's no word for that. So I then had to define it as um, very long-term sadness. And he goes, well, no. And I, and I go, well, yeah, but what do you do if you're really sad? And he goes, basically as you get over it and and <laughs> but hold on i mean you know somebody dies you know something horrible happens well look you can be sad for a day you can be sad for two days but around about the third day you're going to get over it and i go well why why are you going to go over it? he goes because you're going to be hungry mm -hmm. like, <laughs> you're going to have to go do something and then you're yeah. going to move your body and you're going to get over it so then the next the next uh, uh you know step in that conversation was well what about um suicide do you do you guys have suicide again no word for that so i had to explain that in our world that some people occasionally opt out you know that they end their own life and he was so shocked by that so unheard of to him and there was another guy sleeping in the back of the cave on an animal and I thought he was sleeping he's not sleeping he starts belly laughing he he that somebody would end their own life is so is so absurd to him that it's only funny now i know it's not funny you know it's not funny but to them in that context right. it's funny and then but you know immediately nona he says think about it. you've never heard of suicide before and somebody tells you about it for the first time what's going to be your first question how yeah <laughs> he wanted to know how so i said well you know they're familiar with guns they don't use them they don't have them but they know what they are so i said some people use guns and you should have seen him recoil he's yeah. like like he, he, what? That's insane. And then I said, and some people jump off very high things like big buildings and stuff. And that he didn't like that at all because one of the most common causes of death among the Hadza people is falling out of trees and off cliffs and stuff in their hunting and quest for hunting and what have you. So they understand falling. He didn't like that at all. Right. He had spent the whole day with us teaching us how to make poison. It was a real estate. We had to trek way out in the middle of nowhere, find this particular tree, get the pulp out of the tree, mash it to a pulp, and then boil it for hours and create this paste. And we did the whole thing. And you know, and we and, and so anyway, I mentioned to him, well, some people they end their lives with poison. And this is his reaction. He's like, like, like <laughs> if, <laughs> if you, you gotta never... go, like that's the better way. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I mean, that's fascinating. First of all, I think it's absolutely amazing that you do this uh, because this is a wonderful leap in a direction that is so outside of the mainstream everyday life that most people are living. And I, I had a similar experience. I was uh, in Central uh, South America when I was in the Amazon, where you're you're in the midst of a reality that is so vastly different from your day in day out reality. Yeah. And once you experience those, it changes you forever because in the event that you are feeling massive depression, in the event that you arrive at the point where you feel like this reality that I'm living cannot sustain me anymore, I'm going to take my own life, to know that there are other realities out there is what enables you to get beyond that, to say, well, you know what, before I make that kind of a decision, I'm going to go experience that for a while, because that's a totally different version of reality. 
And uh, yeah, I do. I wake up a lot of mornings and think to myself, yeah, someone right now somewhere is hunting and gathering. Someone right now in South South or excuse me, South America, where I was, literally is in their tiny little dugout canoe looking for capybara, which is going to be the meal of the day for the village. Like, yeah. It's just it kind of puts your your issues, your challenges in a totally different frame, totally different perspective. So. Yeah. So one of my um, areas of work lately, I've I've just um, completed this book, and and um, and I and it, and it's. And it was largely inspired by the time that I. But um, one of the things that I noticed I, when I was with February of this year, um, I main group. It's a longer story, but the short version is we always go with guides. And at one point, the chief running through. I was down in the river having a little private pee moment, and the <laughs> going mazungu, 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 which means roughly tourist. So I think he's asking me to run with him. So I run with him. And we're running and running and running. And I'm like, I'm running and all my friends, I, I, all my friends, like I brought some friends. I brought one of the founders of Zumba there. He's a good buddy of mine. I, I like meet people who were with me and my girlfriend, the photographer. And I just said to them, I'll be right back. When <laughs> now I'm gone. And right. after about an hour of running through the bush, I'm like, I have no guides with me. If I get separated from the chief, if I can't keep up with him, if I fall behind, right. you know, I, there's no me not Disney, there's no meeting place, right? And I, I and, and that went on for about three hours, like three hours of intense, and it turned out, this is the silly part of the story, it turned out, um, we got back to camp later, and everything was fine, and, and, and so on. And the chief, he and I have known each other a long time, and we have a fun, you know, friendly sort of, I don't know how to put it, we banter with each other in, in okay. weird ways. And, and, and so he sat down beside me, and he looked at me like, like he caught me, and then he he points at one of the dogs and he says, I think the word, I think it's Mkona, his name is Mkona Muzungu. The dog's name was Muzungu. He was never talking to me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but when he saw that I was running behind him, he thought it was hilarious. <laughs> so, oh like, I guess Eric and I are going for a long run today. Yeah. But then, this moment out there that I saw something with clarity that I'd observed before and I started speaking about this years ago. It's something I call the evolution gap. And it is the gap between our evolved genetics, our evolved physiology, our evolved psychology, and the pace of change in our social development and technology. Yeah, and, and sorry, Eric, I'm going to interrupt you for one second and say, so Eric and I are going to cover a little of this now, but if you have not seen the videos that he has done about this topic, spend some time. Your life will be forever enriched because I'm going to let you talk in just one second, Eric, but I got I to speak your praises that... This is some fantastically cutting edge thinking as it relates to not just, okay, I go through my life and I have this thought and I react, but why do I have this thought? Where in the human history story is this thought coming from? And if I can understand that, now I can really appreciate my behaviors and change my behaviors so much faster. So yeah, Eric, tell us what you want to tell us about this because it's really great stuff. You're saying it so well. It was exactly that idea that um, there came this point in human history where we started innovating faster than our genetics could keep up with. And, and so I would suggest that almost all of the disease and pain and suffering, emotional suffering as well, that we are living with today is um, at least has its origins in that gap, if not completely yeah. crazy. And I saw it, and I've been speaking about it for years, but that day in the bush, separated from everybody, way past, like, you know, when you're at the gym and the, the trainer can push you further than you can push yourself? Yeah. I was way past what I <laughs> to do. I really, and all of a sudden I had this out-of-body experience and I saw it with clarity. Every single thing that gives those people pleasure forwards their success in life 
both in terms of their own survival and their propagation. There's nothing that they do to pursue pleasure that isn't good for them, nothing. Their, 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 their entire neurotransmitter system, their emotional system evolved for that environment. So when mm. they, they get more passion, you hear, you hear Steve Jobs saying, if you wanna start a business, if you don't have a phenomenal amount of passion, you are not going to be able to overcome the obstacles. Well, yeah. people had the level of passion for their business that I've seen the Bushmen hunt with. If they had that, they would be unstoppable. And, 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 and then, then you wake up to the reality that we have those same neurotransmitters. And yeah. that's why it seems as though the easier life gets to live, the harder it becomes to live it. Yeah. Are we disconnected? Is that what you in part experience is that they have the phenomenal intuitive connection to that reality on a second by second basis as they're living it. Um, but we don't. And is it, is it that we don't because we have too many things that give us the information. So if I want to go from point A to point B, I plug it into my phone. I don't even have to really pay attention to the route that I'm driving because I know on the way back, it's going to tell me the way back also. Uh, is that, is that part of it? And, and what have you done to sort of build that connection in your own life to maintain it? It's all part of that. You're exactly right. And there's so many ramifications. Let's use a really basic one. Your brain is not so different than a muscle. You know, if you use it, it gets better. If you don't use it, it gets worse. And one of the best, um, one of the best examples of this, you've probably read about this, but the London taxi drivers apparently were, had their brain scanned at the largest brains in the world on average. And, it, and that's because in order to become a taxi driver in London, you used to have to learn something called the knowledge. And the knowledge was every single street, side street, pub, restaurant, and you had to be able to get between any of them by two routes without a GPS. And you, it was a four-year degree level education. But Jeez. what was fascinating is their brains didn't grow learning the knowledge. Their brains grew accessing it. Now, now you think about it, now you got people driving around with a GPS, they're not accessing their spatial awareness parts of their brain anymore, which means they're not sending blood flow there, which means right. they're not using it, which right. means we're about to see the biggest dementia explosion in the history of ever between the combination of too much sugar and the acquiescing of our brains to our electronic devices. It's scary. That is scary. And the, I noticed that the intuitive connection disappears quickly too. Um, and, and I'll use my own self as an example of this. I was in Albania a couple of years ago, uh, pre-pandemic, and it's one of the adventure destinations I like to go on. I have a buddy that we travel on. He wasn't arriving until the day after I had gotten there. And so I get to Albania, I got my rental car, I have no GPS, I have nothing, but I know where I want to go in general in this particular city. Well, in Albania, there's the particular part I was in, there are no street signs. There, there's, there's nothing that you can sort of use as your visual cues. And it was, I felt the same sort of apprehension that I, I hear a little bit in you describing, you were way deep in the jungle, so far bigger consequences. But there was a piece of me which is like, okay, I'm gonna get an hour away from this. And if I don't figure this out, hey, I'm not gonna find the thing I'm looking for would be, I have no idea how to get back to where I'm trying to get back to. And uh, I found myself just taking a couple of deep breaths and saying, okay, how did you do this when you backpacked around the world for an entire year? You trusted your intuition. Yeah. And it's a, as you said, it's a muscle that if you don't use it, you don't, if you don't further that connection and widen that connection, it disappears. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you, is, there, is there a particular thing that you do on a day in, day out basis to foster that for yourself? You know, um, obviously, I, one of the one of the things I love is I, 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 I meditation because, and I, and it, you know, and I know that's sort of cliched at this point, but for yeah. me, meditations are adventure mind. I can go 
anywhere and I can go to any time and I can go with anyone whenever I want. And so I, I, I tend to do that. I tend to either go out and pre-visit a, a place that I'm going to to try to create a sense of familiarity with it or I go back and revisit places where there's still lessons for me to be had or what have you. And so that, that um, dedication to breaking apart from the technology and breaking apart from the distractions is big. I also choose to live somewhere where I, you know, I live here in the Dominican Republic. I live on the beach, which means, uh, you know, a, a beach walk is available to me every single day. So all, I, I, taking the, just, just, uh, I have a little Jeep, but I, I took all the doors and roof off the Jeep this weekend and took the kids out into the jungle because they, you know, they don't get to see it. And I, I really like connecting with nature as best, as best I can. I can't live in a concrete jungle. I can visit them. Yeah. No, I'm right there with you. And I, it's funny, the people often ask about creativity. So as, as a writer who writes, uh, I often look for something called ahas, these moments of flash intuition where you get this ping that if you can absorb it and hold on to it, it's something that will guide you for the rest of your life. And when I'm working on a project associated with ahas, a walk along the beach looking at tide pools will give me a hundred of them. Yeah. Um, walking in the city doesn't do that for me. That said, I get it that that's just me. That's the way that my brain is wired. And so for somebody, it might be the complete opposite. Um, but I do find that, that those intuitive connections and that amazement about life is further enhanced by spending time in nature. So you've, you've done so many cool and courageous things. Uh, I'm going to go back to something that I asked you about before. Uh, is, is this the way that you have always been wired? You said you've had this balance between like, okay, I'm going to do something adventurous, but not to the point where I'm going to actually, you know, leap off of a cliff accidentally. Um, for someone who, who did not either, so would you attribute it to your parents, your upbringing, et cetera? Do you think it's just your wiring? And for someone who doesn't have it, is there a particular thing that you've helped guide others on who really want to do something adventurous? They really want to be bold in their life, but they struggle with those first steps. Yeah. Um, I, I think that um, my dad had a huge wanderlust. Like he, he, uh, he, he, you know, if he wanted to go f fishing in Lake Tanganyika, he'd be off. Then he'd head down to Suriname, and so he had that. And so I grew up knowing that that was possible, and I suspect that that played a big part for me. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and then equally, you know, my parents split up when I was really young, so I was forced into flying across Canada every couple of weeks to visit this parent. Wow. And so I, I. I, I, and that created a lot of independence. I mean, these days, you take a look at a parent trying to put their 13-year-old on a plane for the first time. They're like, oh, it's so scary. <laughs> the kid has a cell phone. It's not. <laughs> right. I'm 12 years old, flying from Edmonton, Alberta, to Heathrow Airport by myself, then had to find my mother. No cell phone. I mean, that's, you know, I, I guess one of the things that I would suggest is this, is that um, do not seek the most comfort, do not seek the easiest path, do not seek to be most protected, and certainly don't seek to do that to the people around you. You know, it, uh, we, when I look at, at, at what's going on around with kids at the moment, it's like, despite the fact that crime against children is half now of what it was in the 1970s, children, parents now are twice as paranoid as they were, and children get no free play. They, they, many children get no free play. They don't get to get out and play. And now children have a fight, and it's like, don't you guys fight? You know, you should talk to the principal about that. I don't, I'm not sure that's always the best answer because now you raise a generation of children that just want to call a lawyer every time they have a problem. They can't work anything out for themselves. So I think that a key to this is to take the same approach you would go take to the gym. Do not go to the gym and try to bench press your full body weight your first day there. In fact, bench press the bar. Just <laughs> the bar. Like that's an accomplishment for a lot of us. And then after yeah. you 
press the bar for a while, then add five pounds and then a little bit more. And I think all of us can do that. The trouble is, is that we want to speed up what I call our manifestation velocity too quickly. We want what we want too fast. And that's why everybody, that's why there's credit cards and all that kind of stuff. You know, you know what, you know, the marshmallow test, you know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yes, I do actually. Well, you know, so we don't have to recap the whole thing. The well, no, it's, it's, it's actually something that I would bet most listeners and people who are watching this are not familiar with. So if you want to share oh. briefly, yeah. Actually, I know it because I met the guy. At, uh, uh, his name is escaping me at the moment, but I met the guy that was the author of the book. So, Oh, good deal. So the short version is, is that you take a kid and you put the kid in the room and you put a, a marshmallow on a plate on the table and you say to the kid, look, I'm going to leave the room. and uh, you, But if you don't eat the marshmallow... When I come back, I'm gonna bring you a second mark. This has also been done with cookies and stuff, but, but right. what was fascinating, there's two things that are fascinating about that study. The one is the one that a lot of people kind of do know about, and that is the kids' reactions, because they've seen this on YouTube, right? Kids are staring, some kids just snatch it right away. Some kids literally turn their chair around so they can't see, they can't see it. it. And all that is fun to watch. But the thing that I found truly magnificent was going and, and interviewing those kids 30 years later and finding out that the kids that understood delayed gratification were successful, far more successful by every area of life, relationship, health, money, and the whole deal. Yeah. And so I think that's one of the problems we have right now is that there's this need to get your, your, your gratification handled immediately. And then that means that now somebody's like, well, I, God, I'd love to go to the top of Kilimanjaro. Is there a helicopter? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So the other day, my little girl and I, she's six, right? And, and uh, we got some fairly healthy ice cream. Not that there's such a thing, but, you know, like a fairly healthy version of ice cream and very rare around our house. But she knew we had it and she knew we were having it for dessert. But then a friend of hers stopped by and they're playing and playing. Next thing you know, it's 930 and the friend leaves and she remembers that there was going to be this dessert. Now, I don't want to be the father who goes back on his word. We had already agreed we we're having this dessert. But I also don't want her eating all that right before she goes to bed. Yeah. So I'm Past 22. So I turn to her and I suddenly remember the marshmallow test and I say to her, Zoe, I'll tell you what, I don't think it's such a good idea to eat so much of this right before you go to bed. So you can have one spoonful now or you can have proper dessert after dinner tomorrow. I'm telling you, John, it took her three minutes. <laughs> she did not make eye contact with me once. She was just like looking at it, weighing it up, weighing it up. And then she finally looked up at me and she goes, I'll take the proper dessert tomorrow, daddy. And like, that's what we're talking about. More, more delay of gratification and more willingness to be uncomfortable. And anybody can be an outstanding adventurer. I love that. I really love that. And that is if you have, for those that uh, anybody's watching this or thinking about this, if you haven't read it, you can get on Google and you can find examples of this. One of my favorite ones of that is the kids. So they told the kids you couldn't eat it. But one kid figured out that they didn't say you couldn't lick it. And so he actually licked the marshmallow. <laughs> Put it back on the plate, licked it a couple more times, put it back on the plate, and it was like, hey, you guys just said I couldn't eat it. It is a fascinating look into like the way different little brains work. Uh, but this, this idea, I, I can relate to that in that uh, one of the ahas that I talked about somewhat recently was that overnight success happens with, with about three years worth of dedicated effort. And we very often we see someone who has achieved something that we would like to do, see or experience, and we love that, and it's awesome that they did it. Uh, unfortunately, as you said, the, sometimes the perception is like, well, I'll just start today and I'll have that tomorrow. And I think there's two things that are, you miss in that. One is that very often it's the learnings along the way about yourself, about the adventure itself, which is the real, that's the real joy. That's the real takeaway. Um, and second of all, 
as you mentioned, which I think is so, so brilliant, that it is when you overcome the obstacle that you grow. If it was just a helicopter ride up, you didn't really learn anything. You didn't really push yourself physically. And the Kilimanjaro climb, for anybody who's thinking about doing it, as I understand it, based on my discussions with my buddy, is so much about the mental. You have to just tell yourself one more step, one more. There's not a lot to see. And so if you just helicoptered up, you haven't tested the capacity of your mental fortitude. You know, John, I'll offer a little perspective on that. I've, I, as, as you mentioned earlier, I've done Kilimanjaro seven times, six of them leading groups up. And um, it, the, the truth is there is, in fact, a great deal to see. And, and that, is, that, that, that really is the truth of it. Like when you start on day one, you're in the rainforest and there are colobus monkeys and, and, and chameleons. And it's really gorgeous. It's just such an incredible environment. And then you transition out of that into like um, these low trees and low shrubbery. And, 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 but you'll still see like buffalo tracks and big piles of elephant poop and stuff. Like you'd, you'd be amazed that they're up there. And, you, and it makes you start to think, my, I hope they're not too close. And, <laughs> and you further and now it starts to become just like sparse grass and shrubs. And then you then move to another level and it's like lichens. And so cool if you spill water on them they grow and you know there's all this like it's changing and then then you walk into the next level and you're like on a lunar landscape it's like you're on the moon and, and what i've seen having done this trip so many times and average 90 percent of our clients to the top is that um, wait and that's averaging 90 percent when the average group averages like what 30 percent yeah which is amazing yeah, so we've done really well with that because you're right. It's very much about the psychology. And one of the things that we did with that is we really trained people to be in the moment, mm -hmm. to look what's going on around them, to observe everything that's happening. And so what's crazy is that when we talk to our clients years later, I bump into them somewhere, and I'm like, hey, what was your favorite thing about Kilimanjaro? And, of course, often it's the summit itself. But then I go, yeah, but except for the summit. And then there are two things they describe either a moment that they got magically lost in a particular glacial runoff or a, or a, or a little rodent with three stripes down its back or you know the, the giant crows that they have up there ravens i suppose or a moment where they got to know themselves mm. and they really got to know themselves and you know um a good example I did this exercise coming off the mountain once we did it the first time and then kept it from on. it was everybody was talking about the moment that they turned it around for themselves that they that they but I asked him, what about the moments where they were darkest for you? And this one guy, he, 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 he got on and, he, and, he's, and he's saying, he goes, I hate admitting this to you guys, but I found out, he says, I'm a bit of an asshole. <laughs> he, he says, when the going gets tough, I blame everybody around me. I'm climbing up the mountain. I hate Eric for convincing me to come. I see this little school teacher. She's about four foot nothing. And she's walking up with a smile on her face. I hate her for smiling. And I hate all of you. And he goes, and then I... He, he says, it's only now that I realized that I was doing that in my business life, that wow. when something went wrong with my, my, my business, I blame my partner. When, when something went wrong in my marriage, I always blame my, and she, he goes, that's it. From now on, I'm going to ask about my role in this. Now, I don't know. That, that's a life changing realization. That's a magical moment. Yeah. And it, and it all, those kind of moments in my experience only really come from facing adversity and finding out who you really are. That's amazing. And I, I do want to caveat. So my buddy in describing to me, I think was describing just the lunar part. He was saying that by the time he got to there, it was just mental focus. Like, could he get through um, in terms of stuff to see? So I think that's what he was referring to. Do you still do the trips? Nothing to see. What's that? 
and you summit at night very often. So there's quite literally nothing to see. <laughs> um, do you still do you still have an interest in doing the trips? Do you think you will do other trips? No, no, no I'm done. I, I have I, I get requests for it all the time because there's all the, and so on. So my answer, my stock answer has been this is that the only way that I'll do the mountain again is if somebody uh, brings a well-funded documentary film crew to capture the way we do it. Um, you know, if somebody wants to do all that and organize it and I don't have to do it, then right. I'll do it one last time to capture the process. Um, and it's funny. And I said, oh, and it has to have some kind of celebrity star power to make sure that it'll get on Netflix or something. No kidding. A buddy of mine called me about a year, uh, no, about two years ago now. And he goes, we can get, oh, no, oh God, no, it's more. I, the pandemic seems to, I forget that that two years even happened, but right. uh, the pandemic. And he goes, we've got Jim Carrey, we've got Wim Hof and a film crew. Are you ready to go? And I'm like, let's do it. But it, <laughs> apart it didn't end up happening so 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 no i do not plan to go again that would be a pretty ridiculous combination of Imhoff, jim carrey you and whoever else decides to go all being filmed that i would definitely watch it on netflix i'm sure probably everybody's watching this would watch it as well eric uh i so i'm grateful for the time you like our, our 40 minutes is just blown by like that and i've got like 50 questions that I would love to ask you. We haven't even had a chance to talk in detail about one of the things that I know you are super passionate about. So I want to just give you a tiny bit uh, of a lead-in question if there's anything that you want to share because I've watched a lot of your content about food and the passion that you have for reconstructing, deconstructing belief systems around food in part related to what you talked about before about this, and, uh, this evolutionary gap between, okay, who we are uh, as someone who consumes things and the way that our brains look at what we're consuming and the way that the manufacturing component has come into place in the last hundred years, quantities of sugars, the way things are manufactured. Um, since we don't have a ton of time to talk in detail about it, uh, is there something that you want to share with everybody who's watching either as a guide to a lead in or um, just a, a particular concept or thought you want to throw out there? Cause it's really, it's for, again, look it up for whatever we don't, we don't cover because Eric's got some fantastic thoughts on this. Yeah, it, it's a huge topic. And I'll say it like this. People ask me, like, what's the number one piece of business advice that I would that I think anyone should follow? It would be to correct your relationship with your metabolism and food. And then somebody mm -hmm. might say, well, what's your best parenting advice? I'm like, well, get your relationship right with your metabolism and food. Well, what's your best relationship advice? You know, uh, get your relationship with food. <laughs> what's your best? Same thing. I don't care what it is. Everything starts with air, water, food, everything. And, and the trouble is, is that we basically have captivity now. And, 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 and what we know is that no animals do well in captivity in real terms. Great whites last days in captivity. It is not, we, we, truly wild animals don't like that. And we are now living in captivity. Our, our food systems have been hijacked for, by profit seeking. Our food regulations and legislation have been hijacked for profit. And, and, and you know, here we are. What we have to do at this point is recognize that the food industry is not on our side. They are simply in it for profits. The diet industry is not on our side because they just keep publishing things that don't, I mean, they don't work. The science is clear on that. And the pharmaceutical industry, sadly, is also not really on our side. They're here to make us feel better about the sicknesses we have. So what that means to me, that we need a full-scale food revolution. We need to take personal responsibility for our relationship with food and we can, but it requires a level of consciousness that most of us don't have about food. And that's, that's really the work that we do. Yeah, I love that. And, and again, 
if you are not yet familiar with Eric's work and thoughts on this, please spend some quality time. Check out some of the YouTube videos that he's done. He's got lots of them out there, so you'll find lots of great content. Because it's really cutting-edge stuff. And I think uh, I'll close with this thought, Eric. And one of the reasons that I'm grateful that we got to spend time together, one of the reasons that I'm grateful that you do what you do, is it goes to the personal responsibility piece that you just mentioned. If we allow ourselves to align, or excuse me, to assign responsibility to everyone else, then we never get the joy of turning our life in the direction that we want to go. Whether it's something that you want to do see your experience, whether it is a relationship that you want to improve, but there's just an element of your life that you would like to be different. If it's always somebody else who's in control, then you're never going to be able to change the game. But as Eric talks about in his content, and for those of you that have read my books, you know I so firmly believe at the end of the day, it comes down to you and the choices that you make. And so get into this stuff that he talks about because as it relates to food, he's got some really fantastic, you'll hear it and you'll be like, I can't believe I haven't heard that before. Like I haven't believed, I haven't thought about that before. It's just makes perfect sense when you hear it and connects the brain and our behaviors in a way that is very cutting edge. So Eric, thanks for doing what you do. Thanks for changing thousands and thousands of lives out there. And uh, I look forward to seeing you hopefully uh, not another year before we're both back on a greater stage, but hopefully our paths will cross sooner than that. I hope so as well. I was just on with Alex and the team right before you and we'll <laughs> have a reunion get together. Sounds great. All right, my friend, take care. And thanks again for doing what you do. Cheers. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. This episode has been brought to you by the fantastically awesome JS Audio Team. Produced by the talented and so darn fascinating Larry Hodder. All right, everybody. Remember, life is short. Statistically, 28,900 days. So get out there and make this one a museum day.